Hello, lovely members. How I've missed the society. I know, I know, I was the one who went radio silent these last two months, but I promise it was for a good reason. My husband and I moved across the country and now call New York City home. Thank you for your patience as I slowly set up shop once again. I have been collecting enlightening and frightening stories born from the Northeast, and I am so eager to share them with you in the months to come. Of course, I'll revisit the sordid tales of the Southwest, but I'm chomping at the bit to take a bite out of the Big Apple's rich history. There is one chapter we have yet to close, though, the story of Radium Girls. Since the episode aired a while back, I'll give a brief recap of part one before moving on to part two, where we unfold the trials between Radium Girls in New Jersey and Illinois against the country's two most prolific radium factories and how their quest for justice led to stronger worker safety laws. Now, what am I missing? Oh yeah, a very well-deserved libation. Today, we're sipping on Long Time No Here, a take on a rum-forward cocktail by mixologist Rachel Cohen. You can find the ingredients and recipe on the Society's Instagram page. I raise my glass to new experiences, old stories, and to you, my loyal friends. Cheers. In part one of Radium Girls, we found out that U.S. Radium Corporation in New Jersey commissioned an independent study to test the effects of chronic radium exposure only after hundreds of young women working as dial painters fell ill and died. The study's results were clear. The workers were suffering and dying from radium poisoning. But U.S. Radium refused the findings, hiding the results from the public eye and, more importantly, from their own employees. Instead, they conducted additional studies that ensured different false findings that claimed radium was safe. They even went as far as to hire a Columbia University industrial toxicologist to pose as a physician and falsify the women's medical examinations, formally declaring they were experiencing an outbreak of syphilis. There was little public and financial support for community health control programs when it came to treating venereal diseases. In America, syphilis was the scarlet letter of the early 1900s, much like AIDS in the 80s and 90s. The scheme was meant to shame the women into silence. But thanks to the tenacity of Grace Fryer and Catherine Donahue, these women eventually found their fighting voice. I'm Kate Naglieri. Welcome to the Bygone Society Show.
Grace was no stranger to the grim realities of radium exposure. A handful of years working at U.S. Radium Corporation in Orange, New Jersey, caused Grace to suffer from severe bone decay, including a crushed spine that required her to wear a back brace. She consulted doctor after doctor for cloudy vision, a disintegrating jawbone, and other serious health issues, but none of them had seen anything quite like it. It wasn't until a Chicago doctor suggested the conditions might have been caused by her previous place of employment, U.S. Radium. Grace had seen several of her colleagues grow ill and die of similar symptoms, starting with Molly Maggia in 1922. One of seven daughters, Molly considered herself lucky to work at the radium dial factory alongside three of her siblings. Within a few months of starting her job, Molly's tooth started to ache. She went to the dentist who suggested a molar needed to be removed. The toothache remained, and a few weeks later, more teeth needed to be removed. After six months of extracting teeth only to be replaced by red and pus-filled lesions, Molly's dentist encouraged surgical removal of an insistent abscess growing in her lower jaw. Here's his account of her surgery in his own words. I removed her jawbone not by operation, but merely by putting my fingers in her mouth and lifting it out. Eight months after Molly's initial toothache, she died, choking on her own blood from radium-induced tumors that chewed away at her jugular vein. She was 25. Many women with eerily similar symptoms followed Molly to their grave. In 1925, the young yet withering Grace decided to sue U.S. Radium and put a stop to other dial painters from meeting the same painful fate. It took Grace two years to secure a lawyer willing to go face-to-face against the powerful corporation. But by 1927, Grace and four other former dial painters filed suit in New Jersey State Supreme Court for $250,000 each to pay for medical and eventual funeral expenses. Their case became an international courtroom sensation. But two years had already passed. The dial was ticking for Grace and her colleagues. As the girls' health rapidly deteriorated, I'm sure they wondered which would come first, the trial or their death. Their first hearing was delayed until January 1928. By then, the women could barely lift their arms to take oath. And at their next hearing in April, all of the women were too ill to attend. U.S. Radium requested a five-month adjournment to accommodate their witnesses who would be on vacation until September in Florida or Europe, and the judge, who happened to own shares in U.S. Radium, agreed to it, of course. The editor of New York World, Walter Lippmann, described the decision as one of the most damnable travesties of justice that has ever come to our attention. U.S. Radium was intent on it postponing the trial 
purposefully waiting for their former employees to die before they admitted fault. Littman also wrote this. The women are dying. If ever a case called for prompt adjudication, it is the case of five crippled women who are fighting for a few miserable dollars to ease their last days on earth. Finally, a trial date was set but just days before, the women settled out of court for $10,000 each, which is the equivalent of $176,512 today, and an additional $600 per year while they still were alive. Four out of the five plaintiffs died within a decade. Grace developed cancer of the jaw and died in 1933. She was 34 years old. Albina Maggiolaris was the last one to give way to the effects of radium poisoning and died at 51, an old lady in comparison to her fellow radium girls. Back in Ottawa, Illinois, Catherine Donahue read the front page news about the lawsuit against U.S. radium in horror. Catherine was a beloved mother and wife who had worked as a dial painter for 10 years She was fired for poor health and a limp, which were, unironically, entirely caused by her deadly job. Catherine sought medical treatment for her ailing body when a Chicago doctor confirmed radium poisoning was the culprit. In 1938, she and a number of her colleagues would start their own fight for justice. They were dubbed the Society of the Walking Dead. When Catherine sued her employer, Radium Dial, she had already lost half her body weight and all of her teeth. She also had a grapefruit-sized tumor protruding from her hip. Their first effort to sue failed, but the women tried again after Illinois passed the Occupational Disease Act which provides relief to workers injured in the course of their work. They too had trouble finding a lawyer to take their case. Remember, it was the mid 1930s, jobs were scarce, and many people in the public shunned Catherine and her fellow plaintiffs for potentially taking away jobs during an economically unstable time. Eventually, Chicago attorney Leonard Grossman accepted the case pro bono. Throughout the trial, Catherine could be seen with a handkerchief in hand, which she used to wipe away the pus dripping from her deteriorating mouth. This time around, the women won. But Radium Dial only paid out $10,000 in total reparations. And here's the sickening clincher. Radium Dial stayed open until 1978, operating under the name Luminous Processes, just so they could evade restitution. During their name transition, Radium Dial sold the old radium-laden factory to none other than a meatpacking company. I can't even begin to think where that radium-laced meat went and who consumed it, none the wiser. That original factory was torn down in 1968 and the rubble was used as landfill for several public sites in Ottawa, including schools and low-income housing. 
it's no surprise the town continued to see high rates of cancer, birth deformities, and wildlife with visible ulcers, tumors, and other cancerous growths. It's a sobering and relentless reminder of a town's haunted past. The Radium Girls cases were some of the first legal instances an employer was held responsible for the health of its employees. Their efforts led to the formation of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. It's a federal regulatory agency whose mission is to assure safe and healthy working conditions for working men and women by setting and enforcing standard and by providing training, outreach, education, and assistance. If not for people like Grace and Catherine, we can assume more workers would have suffered from unchecked and unsafe radium exposure. No one knows exactly how many lives were lost due to improper radium exposure in the 20th century. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands. But we do know this. If you place a Geiger counter, which is a device that measures radioactivity levels over the grave of a radium girl. It will click for a thousand years. Thanks for joining the Bygone Society Show, where we chronicle the strange and forgotten corners of history. You can learn more about the Society and each episode by following us on Instagram at the Bygone Society Show and by heading over to thebygonesocietyshow.com. Have a story idea? Send me an email at thebygonesocietyshow at gmail.com. From your gracious and ghoulish host, thank you for listening and see you soon. I promise.